As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, please speak to us once more today by the power of your Spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. At the start of our service, David read those words summarizing the law that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then the children sang, love, 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 love. Christians, this is your call. Love your neighbors as yourself, for God loves us all. And this morning, we're going to press into what this kind of love really looks like. And to do that, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount as we continue in Matthew's Gospel. And we begin with this phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which, when we read it, doesn't sound much like the law of love. It's an ancient saying, 3,000 or so years old, and it looks to us rather primitive and barbaric. How could this ever be included in the Bible? Well, I think it's important to understand that this ancient law was actually a law of love. It was designed to limit uh, excesses of retribution. It was certainly not designed to encourage violence. So if you punch me in the mouth and I lose a tooth, this is designed to stop me knocking your lights out. It's also worth noting that the meeting out of justice in ways that the punishment fits the crime was actually not so much the task of the individual, but the task of the legal system of courts and judges, not individuals seeking revenge. And so in practice, a system of damages developed, which of course is still very much practiced today, whereby monetary compensation or some other compensation could be awarded rather than the extraction of a physical penalty. Well, Jesus takes this ancient law of restraint and fulfills it. You remember he came and said, I come not to uh, destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And he fulfills this law by saying that those who follow him have to go much further with their restraint. Indeed, instead of merely limiting revenge, they should not seek revenge at all. Jesus is not for a minute doing away with the justice system. We know that God is a God of justice, and he sets governments in their place, at least in part to restrain the excesses of our selfishness. That's one of the reasons we need to pray for our government, for those in authority, for law enforcement, for the judicial system. But what Jesus is doing here is challenging our knee-jerk reactions when we've been sinned against, when we've been wronged, when people have taken advantage of us. And the desire that so often wells up to get even, to have payback. Jesus is challenging our natural inclination to be concerned for ourselves. I have been insulted. I have been disrespected. I have been wrong, so I must stand for my rights. That's the culture we live in. And Jesus challenges the whole thing. He challenges how we live and how we relate to others. And in the illustrations that Jesus gives, and we'll look at them in a moment, he's using the you singular form. Jesus is not saying that Christians should never make a stand against what is unjust. He's not saying that we should stand by while others are exploited, attacked, or vilified. 
Indeed, we can make a very strong case from the Scriptures that we have a positive duty to protect others, to provide for others, and we saw glimpses of that in the reading from Leviticus. Jesus himself frequently stood up for the downtrodden, the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. Likewise, the disciples didn't roll over when the authorities said, no more preaching about Jesus. They just went right back out there and got at it. But this morning, I want to look at these four specific examples that Jesus gives of how we should react in the face of evil. And I think the response each time is very interesting. Each one illustrates not a getting even, not even a just a, a kind of acquiescence, but something that we can do that is positive and powerful. So let's look at these four things. First, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek. Now, if I strike you with my right hand and you're looking at me, your right cheek is over here. How am I going to hit you? Well, the only way I can do it is like that, with a backhanded swipe. It's a contemptuous, insulting, back-of-the-hand slap across the face. Now, we probably don't encounter that very often. I hope not. And yet, do we not find ourselves on the receiving end of people who treat us with contempt, who are insulting or rude? How do we respond? Are we just to uh, stand there passively and let them do it again? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, I don't think so. He says, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one. That's actually pretty bold. That's actually pretty in your face, pardon the pun. But it's, it's saying, okay, do your worst. It's not, oh, okay, you know, I'm useless. No, it's a very bold, powerful thing. Second example, if someone wants to sue you for, for your coat, what do you do? Uh, make a counterclaim and sue them? Or do you just sit there and say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do? No, Jesus says, give. Give them, your, give them your shirt, too. It's not passive. It's active. Third example, if someone forces you to go one mile, and there was a, a rule in Roman law that a soldier could force you to conscript, conscript you to carry his pack. What's the answer this time? Jesus says, go. Carry it for another mile. Fourth example, give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow. I think we probably struggle with this. I'm sure we've, you've all been asked for money on the street in Craig Street or around the church or in downtown or wherever. Is Jesus saying that we should give cash to every person that asks us to? Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Augustine wisely pointed out that the text does not say give whatever you are asked, Rather, more personally, give to whomever asks. Do you see the difference? We're to give, absolutely, but not necessarily what the person is asking for. The focus is on that person. What do they need? What is, what is the right thing to do? But in each example, before we can be taken advantage of or exploited or sinned against by another person who's out to get us, we are to take the initiative and proactively give, serve, love, help, volunteer, right in the face of wrongdoing that may come against us. Now, I should add, there are no guarantees that this will work if, if by work we mean that it will elicit an apology or justice or whatever it is we might be looking for. 
But is this not a most surprising, powerful, subversive way of de-escalating conflict? Instead of mere submission or fighting back like with like, Jesus would have us take a very different approach. We're to go on the offensive with love. And remember this, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself did not do. Jesus responded to evil not in kind, but carried on being loving and truthful and gracious until they could stand it no more, and they killed him. And even then, as they were doing so, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Is that weakness, or is that strength? Is that defeat, or is that victory? Surely it is real goodness and real power in the face of real evil. And we are called to love, love, what was it they sang? Love, love. That's our call, the children told us. We're to love our neighbors as, as ourselves. And, and Jesus takes it further as he talks about how we're to do this, how we're to fulfill this. In the next section, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. And we heard that, so we heard it in Leviticus. And, and he goes on, and you've heard it, that you should then hate your enemy, which actually wasn't accurate at all. That's not what the Bible says. But there was this misunderstanding that God's call to love your neighbor only goes as far as our own tribe, the people that are like us, the people who are in church, the people that we like. And of course, back in the day when we, he was talking to the Jewish people, it was very nationalistic, and it was, well, we don't, we don't love those people. And yet from the beginning, that's not how it's been. God called his people to be a light to the nations, to show God's love, to demonstrate what it looks like. And in Leviticus, there are those rules about providing for the alien and the foreigner and the poor and the weak. Don't get every ounce of the harvest, leave some so that they, others who need it can get it. And the eye for an eye stuff was meant to curb excessive retaliation. There was a whole system of justice that was actually built on mercy. So there were these refuge cities where people who'd been uh, accused of manslaughter could flee and find refuge so they wouldn't be stoned to death. But here we see Jesus once again filling up this law of love, fulfilling the law. Who is our neighbor? We're used to that maybe in the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan and of course, Who's, who's the Samaritan? He's the enemy. I must have said it a million times. Well, maybe not a million, a lot. You've heard me say it before. Put it that way. Love is a verb. Love is a doing word, first and foremost, far more than it's ever a feeling word. It's possible, therefore, to actually do what Jesus is asking us to do. It is possible for us to love our enemies, even if we profoundly dislike them. And the word here used for that kind of love is agape. And it's a love that is based on a decision of the will. It's about choosing to seek the best for another, especially one who may be opposed to us. Agape is the word used when the Bible talks about Christian love for one another. It's the kind of love that God has for us. It's about our behavior towards others, not our feelings. And of course, supremely, Jesus demonstrates that kind of love. 
And whereas you cannot command someone to the other types of love, familial love or romantic love or even friendship love, you can command agape love. And Jesus does. Even though you might feel hatred or anger or revulsion towards your enemy, you can, with God's help, choose to love that person with the kind of love with which God loves. The kind of love with which he loves you and your enemy. Thankfully, Jesus has more to say because I think if it stopped there, we might just feel rather demoralized, wondering how on earth we can do this. And I think there are two questions that are begged here. One is, why? Why are we to love our enemies? And secondly, how? How on earth can we do that? So let's look at it. First, why? Why should we love our enemies? I think it's worth noticing what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, love your enemies so that they will become your friends or so that you will have a positive effect on them. And by virtue of modeling good Christian behavior, your enemy will amend his or her ways or so that you will feel good. He doesn't say any of that. What he actually says Love your enemies, verse 45, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Or in other words, so that, like father, like son, like father, like daughter, you may love as God loves. And Jesus continues, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Our great loving, compassionate, caring creator God pours out innumerable blessings every day on all whom he has made. They're not rewards for good behavior. Rather, they are the attributes of a loving God. God loves us because that's his nature. He is a God of love. God loves the world. Why? Because it honors him, worships him, obeys him? No. For it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how we behave or what we believe and that God's just fine with it all. Not at all. God is not soft or unfair or capricious. He's a God of justice. He's a holy God. And one day, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. One day, there'll be a day of reckoning for everyone. And in that day, not one will stand except those who have repented of their sins, who have turned to Christ, who have put their trust in him. But in the meantime, God continues to love the world, and we are called to agape love even our enemies. Because that's what children of God do, to be like their heavenly Father. But how? How can we do this? And here, once again, Jesus is very practical. Love your enemies, he says, and do what? And pray for those who persecute you. That is something we can do. We can do that. You may say, but I can't. You don't know my situation. You don't know what I have to deal with at home. You don't know what I have to deal with at work. You don't know what I have to deal with. You can fill in the blank wherever it is. This morning, I want to share with you how some dear friends of mine lived out Jesus' words to love their enemy and to pray for them. 
My friends' names are Robin and Chris Oak. They are actually, uh, they were two of the parent leaders in my youth group growing up. And they had three kids, Steve and Susan and Judy. And their um, son, Steve, was the same age as I am. And while most of us in the youth group went off to university, Steve joined the police force. He married his childhood sweetheart and they had three kids. He was a great guy. He became a detective and was part of the police protection unit for visiting politicians or royalty when they'd come up to Manchester, where he worked. And on a number of occasions, he was part of the prime minister's personal protection uh, squad, I guess. He was also part of a counter-terrorist unit. 11 years ago, he was 40. 11 years ago, on January the 14th, 2003, Steve was involved in an immigration investigation. He went with three colleagues to a house in North Manchester that they believed was empty. Turns out when they got there, there were three men in that house. One of them, Kamel Borgas, it turned out, was a suspect from a bioterrorism plot to poison the London Underground. This man tried to get away. He punched one of the officers. He grabbed a kitchen knife. Stephen went to restrain him, but was stabbed eight times in his chest. And one of those stabbings pierced his heart and killed him. Steve's dad, Robin, my former youth leader, himself a former chief of police, went on national television the next day after Steve had been murdered, and he said this, I am praying for the perpetrator of this killing and seeking God's forgiveness for him, praying also that he may now seek God himself and find peace and forgiveness with him. The next day, that was on the front page of every newspaper in England. I went to Steve's funeral. It was at Manchester Cathedral. I sat a few seats behind the Prime Minister and his wife. It was a remarkable occasion. The cathedral was packed. There were more than a thousand people in there. The service was relayed outside to the many, many hundreds who'd lined the streets for this full police honors funeral. But the service was an amazing testimony to the sure hope that we have as Christians, even in the face of great evil. A sure hope for Steve, who would be alive and is alive with God. A testimony also to the kind of life that Jesus exhorts us to live. There was nothing weak about Steve's Christian faith and life. Indeed, he was posthumously awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal, the third highest medal of honor a civilian can receive for bravery in England. And there was nothing weak about Robin standing in front of the country offering love and forgiveness and prayers for the murderer. I spoke with Robin and Chris, Steve's parents, um, and his two sisters that week on the phone. They told me that amongst the literally thousands of cards that, and letters that they had received, there were some from a number of parents who'd suffered similar awful tragedies. Chris told me that in some of those letters, parents had written to her that it had never occurred to them to offer forgiveness to their child's killer. But seeing Robin on TV and hearing what he said had had a profound effect on them. And at that stage, they told me they knew of at least two people who had become Christians as a result of seeing the power of God's forgiveness in action. Praying for our enemies, 
loving those who persecute us is a very powerful thing. I hope none of us is ever called to have to do what Robin did. But being a Christian, following Jesus, who himself went to the cross, to quote the old hymn, demands my life, my soul, my all. Our text this morning concludes with Jesus saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sounds impossible, doesn't it? Well, let's just look at it for a minute. I think this is saying, you who are Christians, you who are my disciples, you who are called to be different from the world, be perfect with the love that I can give you. And the word for perfect is a word that sums up the fullness of the law that Jesus has been illustrating, which goes beyond mere rule-keeping. It describes a life that reflects God's character. And it has echoes from Leviticus, those words we heard, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, is holy. And the parallel passage in St. Luke's Gospel says, be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. The kind of perfection that Jesus calls us to is not that of a sinless, perfect, perfectly moral life. Yes, we're called to that, but none of us can keep that. Indeed, this sermon, which is, we've just got an extract from the Sermon on the Mount here. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the acknowledgement that blessed are those who realize they can't do it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they are morally bankrupt, that they desperately need help, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a righteousness that we can't do by just trying hard. This plea for perfection then seems to be that we are to practice his agape love and his mercy, which he himself will give us, even in the most difficult of circumstances. As sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, we need to be filled up with his perfect love and mercy so that we can love others as he has loved us so that we may become the kind of children that he wants us to be, living out our God-given identities as, member of, as members of God's family, extending grace and love and mercy towards others the way God does towards us. We cannot possibly do this without God's love being poured into our hearts. Oh, how we need that agape love that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So help us, God, we pray. Pour out your Spirit upon us and increase in us your love. Amen.